Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science. For each episode, we find out what a life and career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm chatting with ornithologist, behavioral ecologist, and most honorable president, Dr. Paul McDonald. Mr. President, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, James. May I call you Paul? No, no, you can call me. Right. <laughs> Sir? <laughs> no, of course. Certainly. <laughs> Uh, you're the president of the Australasian Society for the Study of Animal Behaviour. Yes, so we're uh, in the second year of that, which has been good fun. But yeah. uh, how long's the term? Uh, two years, so I'm I'm on the countdown. But uh, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's been great. The um, Hermione uh, Nelson from uh, Canterbury University is going to take over at the next conference, but mm-hmm. uh, which is up in uh, Brisbane. So that'll be a nice event. So this is the time now where you get to make all sorts of crazy decisions and then just walk away, is that? Uh, well, <laughs> not ideally. Uh, that would be one option. Um, no, no, we've uh, we updated the constitution and, and um, changed a few things around in the last 12 months. So I, I think it's now a relatively stable 12 months is what we're looking for now. All so, right. yeah, it's, uh, it's a really nice society, very much one that um, caters for students. It's a nice... We normally have about 100, 120 type uh, attendees in that sort of ballpark and it's it's big enough that you meet lots of new people doing different interesting things but mm-hmm. small enough that you can uh, you, know, you really feel like you're chatting to them and not just passing them in the corridor of yeah. know, the thousand or so in the bigger conferences but I, I think it's really important to have a local Australian conference like that particularly for for early starting students to make those connections and then when they go to the bigger conferences they've you know, there's a bit of a, a safety blanket there and they know some people and you know, a good way to start your network, I think, mm. and then build up into bigger international ones after that. So we talk a lot about the, the daily life of scientists on the podcast, but we haven't really talked about uh, scientific societies and what on earth they are and what they do. Mm. I, I know for ASAB, the conference is a major part of the society. Yeah, I think that's our... Well, it's, it's the primary. Uh, we also advertise. There's there's email networks and email mailing lists and, and jobs are advertised on notice boards on the the websites and so forth. But it's, I think the conference is really the, um, the main point for having the society and the main advantage for for being a member. Annual conference, uh, because it's local and, and we try and keep costs down to cater for students. It's it's relatively cheap. Um, relatively, is, you know an important word and it's, it's very hard to organize these things uh, uh, on the cheap but we, we do our best to make them uh, as um, as easy to get to as possible so that we can get mm-hmm. as many students there as we can uh, so a lot of the times we've had them in um, you know buses um, shipping people up to the uh, the conference venue and so forth just to try and keep uh, costs down and really the benefit is well I think it's twofold it's um, uh, really encourage it for students early in their career so they can see what where the benchmark is and what people are doing and mm-hmm. and you know even just how to how to give a talk and the types of everyone has their own way of giving a talk but it's not until we sit and watch you know, 40 50 um, presentations over the course of the conference that you, you really get a broad feel for how it might be done and you can identify your style about how mm-hmm. to make a pitch sort of thing um, but it's also really important for, for students at the end as well, I think, to um, hopefully have made those connections with earlier conferences, but they can then uh, look for the next position. Uh, they get to 
know, a bit of a song and dance in terms of this is what I've done and, and what I found, which is mm-hmm. always good to get that out there. Um, and then almost uh, potentially as a bit of practice, the more you do, the easier they get. So the next, whether it's an international conference or the next gig that they're, they're off to, they can you know, have some confidence that they've delivered a talk and they know what sort of questions they get or they're, they're confident that it's uh, it's well-framed and so forth, so they're, they're ready to do that. And It's an important skill, I think, to have, and we tend to think about the, the sort of conference talk in, in academia of a, you know, the classic sort of 12-minute presentation, but you really need to have that spiel for anything, whether it's a job interview or, you know, the classic what do you do at the pub type thing. You, you know, <laughs> you've got to have your... Your elevator pitch. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, whether it's the 10 second or the, the three-minute version or the one-minute version, mm. whatever it is, um, it's a really important skill to have. And yeah. it, it's just one of those things that you get better and better at with practice. Mm. So, yeah. And so you mentioned this society in particular is really student focused almost is that intentional or did it just sort of happen uh i I don't think historically uh it's always had a focus on on supporting students but um i think it's become more intentional as there's a whole heap of different societies out there Mm. and and, uh there's different um sort of niches in terms of some are very taxa specific or uh others are more uh field-based but I think there's just been a bit of a a gap in um, having that sort of a, a place where uh, it's a friendly environment that's that's supportive um, and a real chance for for students to get together. I think that's been lacking, so it has been a bit of a focus. Mm. And it's not to say that we don't, um, you know, there are staff that go, and it's probably about uh, you know a third to two thirds in terms of the ratio. So there mm. are still academics there. And I think that's important too because, you know, in terms of career advancement and, and speaking to, you want to be speaking to the heads of the labs and so forth as well as mm-hmm. other students at the same career stage. So uh, I think that's important. But no, the, it, it's very much in the last uh, oh, 10, 20 years, I would say, uh, been a focus on making sure it's as, as cheap as we can make it uh, so that we do get a good student cohort. And so the next meeting is next uh, 2018? That's right. You're <laughs> going to ask me dates, I'm going to have it's, to Google it. That's all right. It's in Brisbane, am I right? It's in Brisbane. It's on the back of the uh, International Neurothology Conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hopefully we will, uh, some of our um, uh, plenaries are, are from that conference. So, um, so the, the International Congress is the 15th to the 20th of July. And then the ASAB conference uh, is before that on the uh, 12th to 14th. So, uh, yeah, really nice conference venue, uh, easy to get to mm-hmm. being Brisbane. Uh, it's in July, so those of us from colder climes like Armadale won't melt. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, so no, it really should be a really nice conference, I think. Yeah. All right, so we should probably talk about what this is that he does. It's all about animal behaviour. Mm-hmm. And you're particularly interested in bird behaviour. Are, are you a twitcher? I I was in a uh, mis- <laughs> misspent youth. But, um, <laughs> so, so that's where it all comes from then. Yes, I I did. Um, always had an interest in birds when I was when I was really young and and um, working through that and sort of still have the first pair of binoculars and all those sort of tragic <laughs> tales. Um, 
always loved it, uh, but the real, uh, a couple of people I went to uni with when I was uh, doing a BSc down in Wollongong were really serious, um, proper twitchers, uh, <laughs> should be said. Um, well, well, what makes a proper twitcher as opposed to just a bird nut? A proper twitcher will drop everything to go go find a a, a particular bird, and that will include uh, things that they might have seen thousands of in different territories. So, <laughs> classic example is um, you know, things like a black-headed gull or whatever, which in some parts of the world is as common as you know, our silver gull is here mm. in Australia. So, they might have seen many, many thousands of them in their lifetime, but drop everything to fly. Um, <laughs> larger distances across the country and then drive overnight type thing to, to go see a common bird in a different country just to add it to your list. That I think when you start hitting that stage, then you're uh, in full Twitcher mode. It, um, it's Pokemon Go for real, the real it's, world. It's, it's early Pokemon <laughs> Go, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it can be lots of fun, though, but, um, yeah, it can be a bit all-consuming too, I think. And, uh, <laughs> thankfully, my... Uh, my wife uh, has uh, mellowed that side, and with uh, with small children, that's uh, no longer uh, possible. But um, <laughs> I don't I don't spend too much. But you know, look, if stuff turns up close, then uh, yeah. I definitely go have a look. And um, sort of new countries when you get dropped in a you know place that you've not visited before, mm. or a new part of Australia that where you know everything's new, then uh, yeah, the uh, the urge to run around ticking various pages in a bird book is, is pretty strong. But, so yeah. do you, you still have a list running or what's... I, I still have a list. I I sadly don't remember my number, actually. I, I think I'm in the mid-550s-ish, I think. Worldwide? Oh, uh, I don't know. That's Australia. Worldwide? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. A few hundred in Africa and yeah, probably a hundred... In Europe, it's it's very um, it's not an impressive number. Yeah, <laughs> it's not worth digging it out in terms of world uh, world numbers. But yeah. Um, yeah, no, I have good fun, and um, it's just nice to get out and see see new stuff and um, you know just weird stuff. I I, I do remember um, it's nice to get that different perspective. And I, I remember the first time I was in, uh, I had a gig up in um, in Norway for a bit, and when I was up in there, and I was, I got in trouble for looking at. Uh, well, it's snow because it wasn't snow, but that's um, another story because it was only a tiny little patch. But for an Australian, <laughs> not used to seeing any snow, that was yeah. impressive. But for Norwegians, that was just not even worthy of puddle status. It was <laughs> very poor. But, um, but yeah, just seeing the deer, um, hmm. you know, just really common deer. And to me, I thought that was amazing. But, um, you know, obviously you see deer in zoos and whatnot, hmm. actually seeing them in the wild doing their thing uh, was pretty cool. But... Yeah, all the locals were were very disparaging in their remarks, but you know, we sort of say to them, "Well, that's the the equivalent of you know, kangaroos." You, know, yeah, you yeah. come to Australia and see a kangaroo, you'd be um, very impressed. But you know, if you see them every day, they, uh, yeah. they lose that appeal. So I think it's nice to travel and see see different things from that perspective because it gives you a whole new way to think about you know the common things that you tend to yeah. just you know the eyes gloss over a bit and you don't actually see what's happening you sort of yeah. see what you expect so i got teased yeah. a lot because i got excited about squirrels in canada and <laughs> i did i did the same in the uk because they're you know a bit of a pest uh, <laughs> was taking photos of squirrels in um where was he in bangor in the in wales and uh, middle of the town early in the morning and got, got the disgusted shake of the head and <laughs> <laughs> muttered curses from uh, dog walkers as they walk past. It was quite entertaining. <laughs> but but uh, it makes me wish that I could see a kangaroo for the first time again. Because yep. th- uh, we've got some weird stuff in Australia. 
yeah, yeah. It, it, it's really nice just to, uh, and a lot of our common stuff is just weird. I mean, mm. it's, um, I think parrots are a classic example. Our parrots are really obvious, really common, too common, it might be argued for <laughs> many species, but um, really bright, uh, really charismatic behavior, um, and really, really easy to see. So, sort mm. of learning to bird in Australia is just incredible. And you compare that to a lot of other places. The, the views you get of the local parrots, you know, kakariki or something like that in New Zealand, it's just pinging over it yeah, you know, yeah, 100 yeah. metres above your head. Um, and that's it. That's the view you get. You know? it's, um, <laughs> a lot of parts of the world, really hard to see. So, yeah, I, I think it's great. Um, we, we're spoiled a bit in Australia, I think. Is that is then frustrating that we have such interesting birds here and you have to spend all your time chasing noisy, noisy miners? <laughs> Frustrating. Those <laughs> mines are magnificent. But <laughs> no, I think uh, the miners are interesting. They're, they're very polarizing and very clear from that segue where you uh, fit on that continuum. But, uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> no, I, I think miners are fascinating. I, I really do. Um, I, I have to say I quite like the more um, subtle species rather than, uh, you know, your Gordian finch is a bit... Yeah. too gaudy for me to be honest but, um, <laughs> like the underdogs yeah yeah I like the more subtle ones but um, the miners just for their their behaviour just just fascinating and mm. um, there's so many things we could do and I, I got into noisy miners cause, um, actually that Norwegian project was a, a postdoc working on bell miners for a few years um, uh, down in Melbourne in and around Melbourne and the next position was up in Sydney and the bell miner colonies around, but they're a bit harder to get to. So we switched to noisy miners and uh, largely that was you know, sort of work-life life balance in that we had small kids at the time. Mm. And my wife's a shift worker, so sort of juggling all that is difficult. Mm. Um, so noisy miners are great. They're local. Lots of things we can do with them and you know, come home from field work every night, which is which is great. Um but you know they mightn't be spectacular from a plumage point of view, but certainly their behaviour is just just fascinating, and the things they're doing, um, you know, equivalent of primate type behaviour that you know we mm. we tend to snobbily sort of say that's you know only the higher primates, whatever that is, um, are capable of this. But here we have you know, small bird, fifty, sixty grams that quite happily solves the same task. So, so these are the little grey ones with the black head that make the annoying meep. Sound. Yes, that's the uh, the fledglings, and uh, they well and truly live up to the name. Um, <laughs> that's they, the name, noisy miners. Yeah, <laughs> which is uh, you know it's interesting in itself, and it's the best research on that looks like it's a bit of um, that constant begging is more on the sort of blackmail side of things, where there's uh, a Harvian idea originally, but uh, we're talking that sort of chick. Uh, Chick begging makes noise by making lots of noise and make themselves potentially more vulnerable to predators. So it's a bit of a mm. trade-off. Feed me so I you know, be quiet, and your mm. uh, your fitness doesn't get munched. In effect, <laughs> um, to paraphrase. Um, but the other thing, because miners are, are cooperative and live in you know these are highly social groups where they're cooperative breeders. So non-breeding individuals will feed offspring of other birds. From the chicks' point of view, they're actually competing with other chicks in the colony. So mm. uh, begging is a, a reliable signal of need. So they, when they're hungry, they 
make a lot of noise. <laughs> yeah, right. so not just attracting one one parent to the nest. They're competing with all the other hungry chicks in the colony to feed right. them specifically. So, so that call that probably most people are going to be familiar with is actually just the chicks begging for food. Yeah. What yeah. What are the rest of their calls like? Are they do they have much well, of a repertoire? <laughs> they do. There, there is a really interesting quote from, um, oh, I can't remember who said it off the top of my head, but, um, yeah, early 1900s that suggested that Noisy Minor Song was better than Magpie Song, which um, is quite a big controversial. Call. It is a big <laughs> I'm not quite sure I can back it, to be honest. But, um, they, they do have a bit of a, um, most Australian honey eaters have a little bit of a song and um, uh, a, a true song rather than just a simple call. And uh, normally that is accompanied with a, you know, a display flight where they have a, an undulating flight out and then do a bit of a U-turn and, and glide back into a tree. Um, mm. And noisy miners definitely have a version of that. But uh, no, we're up to uh, 17 different call types at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the published repertoire, Julianna Holt put together... Uh, came out in EMU this year. I think that has 15 of those, but there's a couple of extras that we've been working on, and that's um, you know really complex uh, repertoire. There, that sort of repertoire size is is really unusual and puts them mm. right at the the high end. Um, unusual for birds in general. Yeah, yeah, it's um, sort of less than 10 as average i guess in terms of what we see so mm. and we're just scratching the surface with these guys it's it's really easy because they're everywhere and you hear them mm. all the time it's you know quite common to uh, to hear something very new and sort of mm. think, geez you know that's uh not, again something new that we haven't even looked at so you know there's plenty there to play with but uh some work lucy farrow who's who's just starting a a PhD next year in the in the lab for her honours work. She looked at some of the alarm signals and their uh, referential. So they have uh, precise uh, calls for particular predator predator types. So they have a, a ground predator alarm call. Mm-hmm. Uh, so things like a fox or cat or your good self wandering mm-hmm. through the colony, they'll give a, a chirp call to those. Uh, whereas a, a, a soaring raptor or a, a flying object through the through the colony, they have a, an aerial alarm call, so they they have precise. It's not just a yeah um, a lookout or, or there's mm. there's something around. They're giving that extra context about where uh, where that particular predator is and and its behaviour. Uh, and on top of that, those calls are all individually distinct. So the 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 receivers, the ones listening, can can not only get information on what type of predator, but also who's calling and mm. uh, what that particular bird. Um, is or has done in the colony yeah. previously, so there's a lot going on. So it's it, it's all very noisy, but all <laughs> all very interesting. Um, and you know, we're just uh, we are just sort of scratching the surface. It's a bit of a cliche, but it's really been one of mm. those systems where there's been a little bit of groundwork early on, and a couple of other labs working on them. Uh, but the more we find out, it just leads to more questions as the yeah. the scope of what they're able to do is it just becomes broader and broader it's, yeah i it's guess really interesting most people might assume that the bird calls they hear are i don't know the, the classic example is it's a male attracting a female sort of yep. thing but there's a whole i don't know, i don't know if the word language is the right thing to <laughs> to use there yeah i mean it's on some some species have syntax in terms of so the the presentation order can be important um, but these types of referential signals are really becoming 
more and more interesting, I think, and, and attracting more research attention uh, around the world. As an example with uh, tits, for example, uh, in hollow nesting species have different calls for different types of predators. So if it's something like a snake that uh, is coming up the tree and, and can take the chicks inside the nest, then the chicks will actually fledge and they'll, they'll jump out of the nest when that alarm call is mm. happening, even if they're not 100% fully cooked. It's, it's better to get out and mm. a bit early and survive than uh, stay around and be munched, I guess. But um, So things like that are, are really fascinating. People are just starting to to dig a little deeper into that. And the literature on, on bird song that you alluded to in terms of, of males basically telling other males to, uh, to bugger off or uh, attract females... Um, all with single syllable words I'm sure that we shouldn't <laughs> amount. Um in terms of that uh, that's been well studied for a long time but attention to more of the simple calls that are used in every day such as the contact calls or alarm mm. calls and um, uh, things of those nature and the social foraging calls and so on um, much less research has been uh, tipped into those sides of things and I think mm. that's just as just as interesting and, and fascinating in terms of how that impacts on that, that social cohesion and, and how the animals are able to do what they need to do. I remember having uh, one of those brain explosion moments as an undergrad when I first got taught that the clucking sound a chicken makes is their ground predator call to tell the other mm-hmm. chickens around that there's a, a predator nearby, yep. by which they mean us walking around near them. Yeah, and we just assume that's the noise that a chicken makes. Because that's all we ever hear. That that context, I think, is is really interesting, and that's a, a great example of um, you've got to be a little bit careful of the the sort of uh, well, I guess it's not really anthropomorphism, but the you know sort of human arrogance, I guess, in, in some <laughs> ways. Just uh, you know, uh, I think that's really fascinating. Where things like um, passive uh, acoustic recorders that we use a lot in the lab, where you can set them up and they're mm-hmm. recording all day, every day. And, camera traps to get that visual element and, and so forth, really capturing what the animals are doing when we're not physically there and, uh, and impacting on that behaviour is really quite important. And mm. I, I think that's a, a really well-known example where, uh, or, or an example that people have heard, that, that sort of book-book call um, that you know, uh, chickens make is actually, you know, uh, code for, you know, the, there's a human approaching, be careful. Mm. Um yeah, but if you ask, well, just about any kid, that's you know, what noise does a chicken make, and that's yeah. what they return. So <laughs> I think that's a really, a really nice example of how your own um, sort of biases and experiences can can bias interpretation. So it's really important, I think, when you're working on behaviour, to try and steer clear of those and, and attempt to avoid making those sorts of errors. But mm. I'm sure there's some early chicken papers out there that. Uh, probably need to uh, <laughs> be revised and people made that mistake because it's yeah. a, an easy one to make. But, but yeah, it's a, a great example. But you've got these miners that are in big social groups and they're making all sorts of different calls to communicate with one another. The fact that they have such varied calls, does that indicate more complex sociality or cognition or... Well, what can we infer from this? Well, we have to be a bit careful. Um, it's difficult, firstly, to go from... Um, people often jump to, to intelligence, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, that's obviously... Uh, 
well not necessarily obviously but a, a different uh, different thing that's very difficult to measure so we have to be a bit careful about that but that social complexity side of things is is a really interesting question that people have been looking at in a lot of detail uh, for a whole range of species mainly primates but starting to broaden that that taxa in, in the last decade or so and, and look in other birds uh, look at birds and other um, taxa away from primates it's a little bit of a, a chicken and egg type thing in terms <laughs> of you know are they more social and more complex um, because of brain size or, or is you know um, wh- which one's driving the other and pushing the other in terms of selection process mm. but one of the really interesting things to come out in recent years is the um, the avian brain seems to be uh, capable of um, I guess um, for its size more complex tasks than a, a mammalian brain for example a bit like the, mm. the flight characteristics in terms of everything slimmed down and, and condensed and, and weight becomes an issue that seems to have happened with avian brains as well so okay. when you just look at the actual size and go well, okay a, a 50 gram brain in a mammal versus a 20 gram brain in a, in a bird for example uh, you know, the mammal should be more more complex and, and cognitively capable of solving a whole heap of different tasks, that doesn't necessarily flow mm. um, as a direct correlation. It's, it's not to say that the, all birds are, are geniuses and, uh, <laughs> and capable of solving all these uh, tasks, but um, the initial research and, and, and size is the easy thing to measure, so I guess that's mm. why a lot of people have, have focused in on that. But it, it may not be necessarily uh, a good... Um, correlate really well with some of these cognitive processes but for the minor side of things they're really one of the more complex systems that we know about it, it really is quite amazing they um, have you know well over 100 birds commonly in a in a colony all sorts of different relatives in terms of um, you know half siblings uh, parents of the, these individuals um, brothers and sisters from past broods and so forth, right through to complete novel, unrelated individuals that have um, moved in from another colony or, or been raised by completely different parents that are um, as unrelated to them as, as you can get, sort of from okay. a statistical point of view. So, so they're, they're not necessarily family groups. Well, together. they kind of have everything. That's the, <laughs> uh, yeah, why in many ways they um, make them great to work on, but also quite challenging at times because it's it's your classic cooperative breeder retained offspring so um parents keep the chicks from or the chicks from a previous period hang around maybe to the end of the breeding season or perhaps even 12 months to the next breeding season that's a really simple family group and and to explain that we can use kin selection ideas and but it's a simple cognitive process of just help either familiar individuals or, or help those nearby mm. in those systems works that identifies your kin and maximizes mm. your fitness from from helping others the question of whether to help or not is another question but if an individual is to help then identifying who to help is a simple task in something like a minor colony where that molecular relatedness is completely uncoupled from the spatial layout so the next nearest individual is just as likely to be a really close relative say a um, uh, half sibling for example or a complete non-relative and a completely unrelated individual so in that sort of environment there are benefits to helping other birds in the colony full stop so mm. so things like uh, and they're easy to see with the mobbing behavior for example it's, it's relatively easy to look at that and say well 
a bigger colony should be more effective at driving out predators, so it probably pays to help everyone in the colony to mob predators. But we also know from theory that while that might be true, there's also additional benefits to be had from helping relatives as well in that context. So the miners need to solve that problem of not only you know, just help colony members, but also identify their relatives within their colonies and assist mm. there. And really the work we've been doing on, on uh, core similarity and so forth seems to all be pointing um, towards the acoustic properties of, of calling as, as being a proxy for genetic relatedness. So mm. it's difficult for them to, um, I imagine, keep track of you know, who's who and you know, who are the parents of all these individuals and what their actual lineages are, but having a simple rule of thumb of how similar is an individual's call to their own or mm -hmm. perhaps their parents, for example, uh, is a nice, relatively cognitively simple way of, of just, getting just a good proxy. Just their family yeah, members are. exactly. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it seems to be working for them because they're, they're very successful. They're very bird. successful. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, we're, um, we're still working on the noisy minor system and, and still untangling that, but that's certainly what we see uh, in the bell minor system. They give a, um, a call when they're feeding the chicks mm. and that stimulates chick begging, which makes them easier to, to feed. Um, bell miners are the, the only species I've ever worked on where rather than the chicks, you know, starvation being a real risk of mortality for the chicks in the nest, uh, they're, they're overfed and, and completely sated, so they're not begging mm. at all. They're just lying on the bottom of the nest. So the adults, when they come to the, the nest with food, give this um, mew call, stimulates chick begging, uh, but the helpers attending nests that aren't their own uh, adjust how much help they provide based on how similar their call is to the, the breeding male. So right. they're adjusting on a really fine scale. It's not just relative yes, no. They're actually adjusting how much help they provide based on that um, a linear relationship of how similar their call right. is. So it, it's a really well, cool they'll system. They'll help out and really precisely gauge how much they will help out the chicks based on how closely yeah, related yeah. they are. So it's, it's a, it's a trade-off there, getting back to what we were talking about earlier, how hungry the chicks are will impact how quickly they come back and so forth. But, mm. um, you know, at a given nest, they, they appear to be... Uh, it's not related to the space in terms of the how what the nearest nest is or anything like that. It, it's all uh, seems to be governed by how similar their calls are. So right. there's lots of information out there, and and again, it um, and getting back to your your chicken analogy there, <laughs> I guess it it you know it does sound a bit like noise to us, but when you start pulling a, apart these these systems and really unpacking what's in their their calls, the, mm -hmm. the amount of detail is is incredible. And mm -hmm. you know these are. Really short, simple calls, um, but yeah, the the birds are able to extract a lot of information, and there's a lot encoded in that call that they mm. can use. And so, to get a grasp on sort of the complexity of stuff that's out there, you're involved in a huge bioacoustic monitoring project, which involves sticking out a whole bunch of recorders all over the country and just hearing what's going on. Yep. Is, is this like the, the bird equivalent of that scene in The Dark Knight where Batman hacks everybody's mobile phones to try to find the Joker? Well, that is that <laughs> that's an interesting opportunity, actually, for uh, increasing our number of uh, recording stations. Um, <laughs> no, this is uh, a joint grant with... Uh, uh, it's an ARC uh, LEAF grant through um, QUT and um, uh, so Queensland University of Technology 
uh, University of Queensland, um, uh, CSU and a, a whole range of other uh, partner organisations as well. It's a really interesting opportunity and, and really, um, really exciting opportunity. It's modelled on uh, astronomy sort of... Um, so not Batman. No, not Batman. No. So, um, <laughs> although, probably should have looked at the Batman literature beforehand. No, it's... Um, and really having a, a collaborative model where we, we generate a big data set. Um, so we're looking at 400 recorders placed across the country, as you say, trying to, to sample a whole range of different uh, ecoregions. It, mm-hmm. it sounds like a big number, but when you start putting <laughs> dots on the map, it's, um, Australia's a big place. Yeah. So we, uh, this is very much stage one of the process and, and there'll be more to do and we'll want to augment the, uh, the number of recorders out there. But... It's about getting that long-term data. So getting these, this information, these recorders recording 24-7 all year, uh, recording those data onto uh, a server so that anyone can then look at where these recorders are and then download. You know, they might be interested in a particular day or, or period over summer or spring, whatever it is, um, and access that information. And mm-hmm. the power of that is just going to grow exponentially over time. I mean, this, you know, looking at uh, climate change, for example, or the the impact of uh, really habitat-changing events, so, so rainfall in the desert, for example. That's, mm. you know, frogs all emerge and breeding happens for a lot of the other taxa around that isolated event. But that's exactly when you can't get there because the, the roads are closed mm. and it's, it's logistically difficult to get out there and sample. But... Um, that's precisely when most interesting things are happening. So, so it's not just birds we're monitoring. It's no, whatever makes things, a noise. It's really. everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, so we'll have some, some ultrasonic recorders as well so we can uh, start to get some of the microbats. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is all, all audible sound. So we'll be looking at uh, frogs, inverts, uh, birds, um, some of the mammals, anything that makes a noise we can keep track of. And mm. A lot of that can be uh, environmental as well. So... Um, some really cool things in terms of um, you know, predator uh, response. So a lot of species will make um, you know, foot slaps in the face of predators, for example. Mm. So things like rabbits and so on, you might have heard um, making noise when predators around. So any sort of noise in the environment, if you if you know what it means and what you're looking for, then then you can start looking across these these sites. So right. really keen to look at. Uh, things like uh, migrants, uh, migrant taxes come in, um, how they move through the country and how that relates to climate. Um, things like those uh, unpredictable events like rainfall or, or wildfire and so forth mm-hmm. and all those sorts of habitat changes. Um, you can just imagine sort of you know, 10, 15 years down the track when you've, you've got multiple seasons to look at in different locations mm-hmm. um, that will just be an amazing resource. And It's very data... Um, <laughs> hungry and we're yeah. talking about uh you know petabytes of data type thing it's, it's a big big project but um the software to deal with that and an automated analysis of some of these um soundscapes and so forth yeah. is, is really um that's the holy grail and and we're a lot of researchers focused at the moment so yeah. well um you know, know you've got years will be yeah years worth of non-stop recording at 400 sites no one's going to sit and listen to it so there's got to be a way of a exactly. program listening for something exactly. in particular. And, um, you know, the power of, of recording everything means that, you know, if someone's interested in a particular insect that makes a particular 
uh, noise, they can focus in and, and build templates to find mm-hmm. just that individual and maybe they'll do that. That might be important for a census point of view in terms of where are they and, and when are they calling in across these 400 sites or mm. it, um, you know, onset of breeding and things like that relative to the, the climate of each year, all those sorts of questions you can ask right through to uh, there's all sorts of metrics you can have how noisy a particular recording is, for example, so how much stuff is in there and mm. um, it really is quite sobering some of those um, analyses in in other parts of the world where you know the dawn chorus had you know, many more species and and many more individuals in it mm. not that long ago compared to now and the the noises are actually becoming uh, you know the forests becoming more quiet for example mm. in, in areas where we're starting to lose species so things like that are, are really powerful and the power of those sorts of analyses just builds with time so yeah. the, you know we've got um, uh, you know, funding in a, a model that uh, will keep this running for the the first five years, and you know, we, we gives us five years to look at what we do yeah. beyond that and and keep building on it. But um, yeah, it, it's only you know you can only imagine what we'll be able to do in you know several decades of this um, yeah, yeah. available to play with. That uh, can actually hear so. changes absolutely in the environment uh, over time. That's it's almost poetic. It's Yes, well, you, as you say, you don't want to listen to every second that's recorded on the whole <laughs> network, but uh, but you know certainly that um, you know th- there's so many different techniques that can be used now, but that ultimately is what we're trying to do, and it, it's a way of it's very expensive, and you need specialised researchers to to survey effectively across all these different sites, and um there are advantages to doing that and there's something that people will continue to do and need to do but mm. um the beauty of these recorders is the um is that they can uh, they record all the time uh and we can get the specialists um can sit in the lab and we can take the information to them so mm. a non-specialist can install the equipment and and keep it running uh and we only need sort of one specialist back in a central lab to mm. to process that so and that lab could be anywhere um well, anywhere in the world, really. It's it's not uh, it's Australian data, but it's certainly open to to other researchers as well. Mm. So, yeah, it's open to anyone. Is this going to be publicly available? What's yes, it will. So um, there'll be a um, you know these. We've taken the approach of while it's possible to have a, a Wi-Fi connectivity and or use a cellular network to to get data streaming and so forth. That's very expensive, and you mm. end up spending more money on that than than the actual sensors. So we're We've taken an approach where we want to maximise our coverage and, and the number of sensors, so we'll have to visit um, the recorders to uh, to get them recordings and upload them. So mm-hmm. it won't. It's not a system where you'll be able to, you know, in real time, listen to what's happening out mm-hmm. there. But certainly, it'll be a, um, uh, a portal is being developed where you know, effectively click on click on rather uh, which recorders of interest and mm. you know download set dates or whatever's there and, and go from there and and that'll be open to whoever's interested mm. uh, and hopefully the that's the other advantage i think of big projects like this is there's things that you know, researchers on the ground are interested in doing and questions that we have that we want to answer but that's only the tip of the iceberg there's so many other questions mm. that could be answered that we have neither the um the expertise or time and and just plainly haven't thought of them yet so yeah. that's that'd be really interesting to see what others come up with and, and start yeah. playing with yeah so yeah. that'd be really cool i think i feel like when we're talking about 
you know, environmental changes over time, bird communities seem to be, I don't know, in my experience, seem to be the most visible and most obvious know, to, to anyone that cares to look. I even just, I, I just remember growing up in Western Sydney, feeling like the, the whole area was just covered in the common miners and the little high sparrows. And I don't know the last time I've seen those, it's all you know, crested pigeons and yeah. uh, ibis, I guess. Yeah, ibis, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, does that make, are birds useful bioindicators then? Are these kind yeah. of natural successional changes? What's Well, it depends on your definition of natural. Um, <laughs> they're certainly in our lifetime. And uh, I mean, galahs and, and crested pigeons are a classic example, and ibis as well, of, of species that used to be, relatively rare um mm. uh, well if you take galahs and the crested pigeons um you know the advent of um grain storage and uh availability of water and so forth meant that rather than being a relatively rare bird on the coast they're now abundant and as you say it's quite common to see uh those guys in a whole range of areas that you know 30 40 years ago mm. just weren't there full stop um so that range expansion has been really quite obvious and you can get those data from, you know, BirdLife Australia's had uh, two atlas projects, for example, and there's ongoing a whole range of different atlases now where um, those sightings are, are there and you can map the the progress and expanse of those species and likewise the the other taxa that haven't fared as well and are going backwards. Um, but yeah, I mean, like anything, they're... There are th- things that they're good for using as a, a proxy in a, a, a monitor species and things that they're not. But mm-hmm. um, broadly, because they are relatively easy to survey, um, it's quick and cheap and gives you a good indication of what's happening. And particularly if you can look at different guilds in terms of you know, insectivores versus uh, you know, mammalian predators or and those types of questions, you can start digging and, mm. and pulling apart exactly what seems to be falling over in the system. So, mm. um, yeah, they're definitely... Definitely worth considering as a, as monitor species, yeah. I mean, I'm assuming it's good if we see more native things overtaking as opposed to you know, European sparrows. Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting question, actually, <laughs> because, I mean, the house sparrow is, is one of those species where in its, um, it's virtually cosmopolitan now, mm. but in terms of its original quote-unquote, native distribution that was unassisted, unhuman-assisted, shall we say, um, they're actually doing quite poorly, and, and you know, the population stabilised a little bit, I understand, but, but certainly there's real concern over house sparrows in you know, their, their native range, <laughs> um, which is a little bit hard to get your head around. And mm. uh, Another introduced tax we have here, Skylark, are the same. They're, they're doing quite poorly in uh, Britain, so... It becomes an interesting question of what what we have, and if okay, if we were able to remove those taxa overnight from from Western Sydney, as you said, uh, would we get anything else move in? Um, I'm not sure whether we would or not. With some taxa, but uh, <laughs> certainly others potentially we would. And there's lots of competition over things like hollows and so forth. So, yeah. you know, it, it's an interesting idea. But uh, yeah, it, it, it would be. If things like house sparrow continue to crash, we're going to be faced with an introdu- with an interesting problem where we have an introduced species in other parts of the world, <laughs> but from a global conservation perspective, they're the only remaining uh, individuals potentially. So, yeah, that's are we an arc for house yeah, sparrows? <laughs> potentially? Yeah, and uh, it, it, 
but you know, even introduced taxa change change quite um, quite quickly. So uh, the other sparrow in Australia, the tree sparrow, is uh, or the other more common um, city sparrow, uh, is an interesting example. They they used to be quite common, particularly in and around Melbourne, but mm. but now are very thin on the ground, and there hasn't been any concerted you know, removal activities. This is just a, a fluctuation in. Uh, you know the way the the suburbs are arranged, presumably mm. now, and and how people live is it's no longer as compatible with uh, you know, what they were able to do before. So the, mm. those populations are crashing. So it's uh, yeah, they're all really interesting questions. <laughs> but uh, I, I getting back to what you want, I think I think diversity is always the key. So uh, and particularly in areas where well, noisy miners are, are, are another. Um, potential confound on, on biodiversity where you just end up with a um, an avian monoculture, I guess, where mm. uh, you're just dominated by... Uh, you normally have other few large species like butcher birds and magpies and so forth, but, you know, the big aggressive things um, and as a result, our woodland birds, so the um, a lot of the honey-eater species, robins, uh, thornbills, those sorts of guys are, are, are doing it quite tough because mm. um, there's not a huge amount of space left yeah. <laughs> uh, and as miners continue to expand that that becomes more problematic so there are definitely challenges out there but uh, as you say the advantages with the with bird groups is that compared to a lot of other taxa the general public is is quite engaged and we have re- relatively good data on, on where these individuals are and mm-hmm. you know there's a, a whole bird watching um, uh, movement out there that, that's recording these individuals and, and giving us data so we have an advantage there over some other taxa, which mm. you know, general public may not even realise exists, let alone be out there recording. Yeah. Mm. And now a giant recording set up across the country. Yeah, so we can hopefully do that as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, if people want to find out more about your research group and what you do, you have a website? Yes, that's right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Avian Behavioural Ecology Lab. That's right. So at the that's, University uh, of New England. Able.une. A-B-E-L.une. E-D-U.A-U. Yep. And, uh, yeah, some more information there and a a newer Flasher website coming (laughs) at some point (coughs) in the near future, hopefully. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Mr. President. No worries. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Good to talk to my subjects. That's the wrong... Yeah, there you go. You wish you well and, and your retirement. And thank you guys for listening. Uh, you can check us out at InSidueScience.com and we're on at InSidueScience on social media. Thanks again and we'll see you later. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au. 